When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How should you be positioned ahead of the Fed meeting? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Brent Donnelly, president of Spectrum Markets. Hi, Brent. It's great to see hey, you again. You? How you doing? I'm doing okay for a Friday. I'm happy it's Friday. I felt I feel like that as we get to the end of the year, it always feels a little long to me because <laughs> we've got we still got a, yeah, and we still we still have a lot of lot to get through. So, um, just before we jump in, a reminder to everyone listening: if you have a question for Brent. Uh, you know what to do. You can drop it in the comment section of our website, in the chat section of YouTube, or you can tweet us at Real Vision. Um, so Brent, uh, producer prices came in this morning, a little bit above expectations. What did you make of the data and the market reaction? So it was a very strange day today. I got a lot of queries about, um, you know, what the hell is going on in equities and the dollar uh, given that people generally know that there's a relationship between PPI and CPI. Um, not just in terms of trend, which is obvious, but also in terms of the misses each month. So if PPI tends is strong, then CPI is more likely to be strong versus expectation. Um, and so the reaction today is completely backwards. And I think part of it is that really there's a lack of engagement, like a lot of funds and and even real money feel like they've packed up for the year. Like, you know, I have, I have hundreds of chats and today there was a two hour period where not one of my chats was lit up. So like people are really, really quiet. Um, I think a lot of people had really good years and so they're just, they're packing it in. Um, and also a lot of people had really good H1 and then like a meh kind of H2. So that's like an environment where you're like, okay, I'm just gonna keep what I made. Um, so I think that's part of it, which then leads to a lot of randomness. Mm -hmm. So if you look at like S&Ps now versus one month ago are unchanged. So like we're having a lot of noise, like the, around Powell, we had that ripper, rip roaring rally up above the 200 day. And then we cratered all the way back down a couple of days later on kind of nothing really, right? So what I think we're doing is we're kind of in this equilibrium zone here where the market is very bearish. Um, like if you look at analyst forecasts for next year, uh, the average forecast is down is for the S&P to be down, which is like totally unheard of. If you look back, like I saw a Bloomberg thing back to 1999, for analysts have never been, like the median forecast has never been negative for the year ahead since the, the data that I saw back to 1999. So that's highly unusual. So there's a lot of reasons to be bearish, which we can talk about. Um, so, but then the, the news on the ground is kind of mixed. Like people have a very bearish outlook um, which makes sense. But then like, if you think about what's going on right now, you have lower yields and stable yields, which is kind of good, right? Like we were worried about convexity and, and yields exploding higher. You have China credit impulse and China reopening is, should add some like positive vibes. Um, and then you have falling inflation, even though it's high, at least it's going the right way. Um, and overall the US data is like, 
bad, but not horrendous, right? Like Chicago mm-hmm. was horrendous, but then services and, and ISM services was like 56.7. So I feel like there's this very bearish future outlook, but the current situation isn't quite bad enough for stocks to really, really go down in a meaningful way. Uh, so what I think it is, is that you're going to get something that's a little bit more like 2000, 2001, which I think we talked about a little bit last time I was mm-hmm. on here, which is, it's not like this V-shaped collapse like you got in 2008 or, or in 2020. It's more of like this grinding bear market with big rallies, right? So the analogy now in compared to 2000 would be when the Fed paused in June of 2000, there was like a 20% rally into September of 2000 because people were like, okay, good. The rate of change is, is better and yada, yada. Um, and then the Fed cut 12 times and stocks went straight down the whole time they were cutting. So what you need for a real bear trade in, in stocks is meaningful economic weakness. And we just don't really have that yet. We have like a lot of soft data pointing to economic weakness, but not actual economic weakness. And just one more thing, I know this is a very long answer, but um, the the market is trying to trade bad news as good news and or or good news is bad news. When the numbers are strong, they sell stocks. I, I think that's totally wrong. Like I think that really bad economic outcomes will be very bad for stocks because the reason that good news or that the reason that bad news is good news in the olden days was because the Fed would pivot and then provide liquidity. But when inflation is 5% and they don't know if it's gonna come off, they don't have the luxury of providing additional liquidity. So you're gonna get a Fed hiking into economic weakness and that's bad. So I, I think this whole like bad news is good news thing is totally wrong. And the Fed hiking into weakness is why the curves are so inverted. So uh, again, another warning sign from the yield curves, but not like I don't think we have the actual visibility on like hard data being bad for mm-hmm. the actual next leg down through 3,500. So I, I love a good long answer in the beginning because it gives us, I think, a really good overview of, you know, ma- your macro thinking and, and there's a lot of moving parts. So let's break yeah. some of that down. It sure. sounds like you're saying that. So first of all, I know you always think as a trader as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So it sounds like short term, you think that people maybe are too bearish. You know, they're, they're, if, they're, if they're bearish, they're thinking that stocks are going to, to move down. And you see, you made a compelling case of why there's enough support out there to kind of hold us up, even if we don't see a, a big rally. Or do we see a big rally, I guess? Let's do short term first. So sure. too bearish, but are, they, are you expecting to see some, you know, miraculous year end rally here? No. So that's the thing is that I think that the forward look, the the real challenge for stocks isn't just the economy. It's that they have competition, right? So the old thing was Tina, there's no alternative. Uh, You had to own like Megatech or whatever, or or Fang and and all that stuff because there was no alternative because rates were zero. Now, actually I did a survey. um, I have it, I think on my screen here, um, asking people, what do you think will perform the best what, which of these assets do you think will perform the best in 2023? Um, and U.S. two-year government bond yielding 4.3% was the, the one that people picked the most out of like 
high yield ETF, S&P, NASDAQ commodities, oil, gold, Bitcoin. So, you know, at 4.3% guaranteed, 4.3% is not amazing. Like obviously S&P's got many years where it goes up 15%, but with no risk, um, you know, I, it, it's, that's the biggest headwind for stocks is just that you don't need to own stocks to get a return anymore. So you're not forced to buy them. And so I think all the rebalancing that people will do like in 401ks and stuff mm. will all be out of equities and into um, like risk-free instruments. Because the whole point of QE was to force people out on the risk spectrum, right? So mm. you force them from T-bills because they, they're getting zero returns and force them more further and further and further until they're buying like levered REITs or whatever. Uh, and and now, you know, the boomerang of that is that now you go and you go all the way back to risk-free at 4.3%. Um, so to me, that's just going to be a constant headwind. But like I said, I don't think this is the kind of um, bear market where you just sit there short and like print money. I think you, you have to sell rallies. And like, I'll be bullish sometimes still uh, tactically, like trading wise, like this week, actually, I, I've been more trading from the long side. Um, but it's, it's not really about the bearish consensus. It's more just about, uh, I think we're in more of a choppy regime right now. I don't think we're in a downtrend. I think we're, we're in like a, a choppy regime that may actually be a little bit more bullish because the feds appears to be like getting towards the, you know, the, the, what terminal is, is narrowing, but then you know, we don't know for sure, right? I mean, maybe average hourly earnings and PPI and then CPI comes in strong and maybe we have a, still have a big inflation problem. So people are assuming that the inflation has peaked and that is almost certainly the case just because of the math of the base effects. But it, if it, the floor is 5%, that's a lot different from the floor being like 2%, which is what inflation forwards are pricing. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, um, f first of all, you we did talk about it being very much like 2001, uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, and that grind, that painful grind sideways. Um, and fr from the from that moment, a lot of people have joined your camp. Not many people were talking about it, but what I have heard a lot right. of people kind of referencing that as opposed to the 70s as the thing to watch for. And again, we're not we haven't been used to that. Right. We've kind of mm. seen these these big moves one way or the other. But the idea that stocks have competition, I think puts puts it really simply, but it's it's something that we haven't heard people talking about a lot because 60-40 was dead. Everyone got killed mm. that this year with that. So it is was this year just a one-off or is it, okay, maybe it's not gonna be bonds, but the point is it's gonna be something else because it's more about capital preservation than it is about trying to run for yield. Yeah, I think that's, so, Yes, but I think also uh, my spidey senses are tingling when I see the the median forecast is negative for stocks. I mean, that just like it's uh, it makes so much sense, obviously, given everything that's going on, Fed hiking, hiking into weakness and all that. But I have to keep an open mind to some scenario where stocks go up next year, because yeah. like the consensus isn't always wrong, but like 60 40 being down this much this year it's the i i think i sent you a chart actually i don't know if you're able to put it up um of i think it's a goldman sachs chart showing that when 60 40 is down a lot 
the next year it's basically up almost all the time there's one time in in 1930 that it, it went down two years in a row but generally some combination of stocks and bonds probably won't end up being horrible next year mm. um i mean that's the beauty of 60 40 right is that it's the all-weather thing that's what ray dalio kind of invented risk parity as you know if we if we see economic weakness then the bonds help you and if we do okay then the stocks help you and the only reason it didn't work was because rates were at zero. So bonds were massively overvalued. When rates are at 4%, then bonds should be an effective hedge again for, for risky assets. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. So um, all this that, to that, say- I'm glad you said that because a lot of people were wondering, and, and by the way, when you were saying it, a lot of people had a great year. I think if you're a macro or a hedge fund, you had a great year. There are a lot of people who had a terrible yeah, year yeah, who are sitting point. in, right, actual, who are ordinary investors, which is why we're all kind of limping to the finish line here. And part of it is because that traditional 60-40 broke down. So we have a question from Colin. Uh, are you saying that the degree of yield inversion is wrong? No, I think it's right because I think the Fed will will maintain high rates for like I don't think they're going to cut in 23. So I think generally government institutions tend to play CYA kind of game and tend to fight the last war. And so the mistake that they're going to make now after decades of being too low for too long, almost certainly they'll be too high for too long this time because they don't want to make the same mistake twice because that's like the thing that makes you feel and look the stupidest. <laughs> um, and like, I mean, that's just human nature, right? Is that you, you don't want to make the same mistake two times in a row because you feel dumb. So I, I think the inversion is probably, it, it makes sense to me because if you look at like in the 70s, like 72, 75, 80, 01, those were all times when the, there was a decent amount of inflation and economic weakness at the same time. And that appears to be what we're heading for. Um, now, I th still think, given that the US has so much less interest rate sensitivity than places like Canada, that I still think it's possible that we end up skating through and, and the whole world doesn't end the way everyone thinks it's gonna end. Um, you know, there are, there are ways that like in the, in 94, there was a massive move in yields and it eventually was a, a massive bull market in stocks after. So I know this is like generally as a forecaster, like expert coming on a, a TV show, you're supposed to have like a clear, strong directional view and pound the table on it. Uh, what I see is a very compelling bearish narrative that makes a lot of sense that's like wildly oversubscribed and just seems too easy. So I'm trying to keep an open mind, but I know that doesn't really like make great headlines on a, on a TV show. No, we don't. We, so we don't do headlines like that, Brent. <laughs> this is exactly why, why we have this because um, it's more nuanced than that. And, you know, it's not just to have a great headline and then not be true. We're trying to sort of arm people with 
accurate information. And it doesn't always look like it's either a huge rally or it's a, a huge, you know, the idea that you've got to navigate. And by the way, we've been hearing this. You're going to have to navigate a market that, where you're going to have to maybe be more tactical, where you're going to have to look and rebalance a lot because you're mm. going to get these periods of a rally, but then, you know, you're going to have bad news and, and it's within a range, but you're chopping, but some of them can be pretty you know, pretty extreme. You can't just sit on your hands and do nothing because that that's not going to work. And we're also hearing what worked before may not work. So you have right, to, you know, right. perhaps look at so, this through a different lens. And let me just give like my clear view. So my, my view would be like on a longer horizon, because I tend to trade shorter term, is that you want to own fixed income and then basically sell rallies in stocks, but also try to accumulate things that you like on sell-offs. So like basically a very choppy downtrend in stocks and fixed income kind of has you covered if you are generally long fixed income most of the time. Um, now the, the killer for that, so I'm talking about kind of like a dynamic 60-40 approach essentially um, or rebalancing kind of approach like you said. And the killer for that would be as if inflation starts going up again, then that idea is completely screwed. But the thing is though, that really, if you look at the simple things that were driving inflation, almost every single one is collapsing except for services. So I'm assuming, and like average hourly earnings went up this month, but they also went up in 06, 07, because when you lay people off, you have to pay them more and that tends to boost, like it skews the data. So weirdly mm. when layoffs are high, average hourly earnings tends to go up and then it goes down a lot after. And I just don't see sustained inflation coming from services. Like, yeah, it's gonna be the positive contributor, but then goods could actually be negative, right? Like the mind blowing thing about this year is you look at like the narrative around wheat and oil and what they actually did. And yeah. they're both like unchanged on the year. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, we had an awful lot of people making some big calls on on mm. the sort of super cycle and all of these, and and it's been it, it's been a little bit of a head scratcher for some people, and it's it, it's been difficult because as you say, we have parts of the economy. I mean, I I heard a, a CEO talking today, like his clients are freaking out, like you know the inventory build really threw them off, and the demand's mm. not coming through, so they're sitting on a ton of stuff. But then you talk to other people and it's, you know, they're going like gangbusters because as you said, that difference between the goods and the services mm -hmm. is is making it hard. You're, you're kind of getting these readings all over the place. You know, it's interesting that that you were just talking about, about that and trying to sort of figure out where inflation is. And we... Um, a colleague of mine, uh, James Halliwell, sat down with Russell Clark, mm -hmm. who makes the case that we are seeing some seismic shifts in the global economy, um, and that the models that he used before, he doesn't think work at all. It's He's completely changed the way he looks at things. Let's run a clip from that interview. Um, uh, what I really need to do is get uh, a better understanding of politics and how... Uh, how governments think about things and what they're doing. Um, and that's what I have been doing for the last year or so. Um, and for me, it feels like we're coming into a big change. Uh, and the weird thing is like for macro investors, I know this, for, this is sort of macro investors, if you're probably like my age or younger, um, you probably got this idea that macro is like forever. It runs in predictable cycles. 
everything should happen uh, in a sort of normal way. And that is certainly how I used to think. Uh, I now realize that the way macroeconomics or economics in general is actually just a sort of subset of politics. And the way macro has worked is because governments have chosen to stay out of markets, if that makes sense. And so we've had like a free market system. That system now is falling apart, if that makes sense. And so that leads, for me anyways, to some predictable macro trades going forward. That full, that full interview is available on our website. I strongly encourage you to watch it. It's a really unique conversation about somebody who's sort of changed the way he looks at things and he tackles a whole bunch of sort of very um, different topics. Um, and it's going to be a conversation you haven't heard. So uh, go ahead and check it out. If you're not a subscriber to RV, this is exactly why you need to be um, because it's really interesting. Um, I haven't finished watching the whole thing, full disclosure, but I'm going to make sure I do that this weekend. Brent, um, we're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Do you feel like the old frameworks are harder to apply in this environment, or do you feel pretty confident that things are sort of settling into the business cycle as you are used to seeing? No, I mean, I think many, many of the things that applied from 2010 to 2020 specifically are completely out the window, um, like mean reversion, low, low volatility of economic data and all that. And really, like I, I think one of my core beliefs is just that forecasting the economy is really insanely difficult. Um, and so I think we had this sort of false confidence and policymakers had this false confidence from the secular stagnation era that like, oh, we can control inflation. We can, all we have to do is like move these levers up and down and we can make it do whatever we want. And like, I think we might've talked a bit about this last time, but like people don't, there's still a very active debate on what has caused this inflation. Like, I think it's pretty obvious it was some combination of fiscal and monetary, probably mostly fiscal since we saw monetary in 08, 09, and there was no inflation mm. other than asset price inflation. But the ability to then understand like which pieces are gonna unwind, like there's, there's this concept um, called like the poly crisis where you have a crisis that's caused by like 15 different things so then unpacking what's going to end it is really difficult because you don't know how those 15 things all interacted. So like obviously COVID and supply chains and fiscal and all that, like there were so many inputs interacting that I, like, I think that's why I don't really listen to what the central banks, like I listen because I have to, because I'm trading it, but like, I don't really listen to what Powell says anymore because he doesn't know what's going to happen. Like he, he was saying, well, oh yeah, like 75 is not on the table. Then they went 75, 75, like the, the uh, many of the things that they've said as forward guidance did not happen. I mean, like Tiff Macklin was saying in July, 2020, interest rates will be very low for a very long time. You know, like they it's, and uh, to me, it was foolish for them to say that because even at that time, we know that like forecasting economics is just really hard. Um, so my approach is more 
to try to like understand the now more than to forecast the future because um i feel like there's some things that you can kind of see in the now um mm -hmm. whereas like i get that there's like wage a lot of wage impacts and stuff that are going to be really delayed and that could impact inflation positively so to me it makes sense like we come down to some floor that and that floor is going to probably be like the old ceiling so like the old ceiling was three three and a half now the new floor will probably be three three and a half and the fed will never admit this but that's probably what they want like he, there's a whole debate about like will they raise the inflation target like they won't they'll just let it sit at three and three and a half and and not tighten because that's the best way to like burn off excess debt and get back to you know some kind of normalcy hopefully over time yeah I, it makes a lot of sense um uh, sort of understanding the now does that mean that we all need to shorten our trading horizon or time frame because you know you mentioned that you are a short-term trader you have long-term thoughts and we we're seeing that you know long term you can understand the bearish case for stocks short term though your spidey sense is telling you that maybe everybody's on one side of the trade and you know it's not going to be that bearish do we all need to kind of shrink our time horizon in this environment no i don't think that's really a good idea so it's it's really like this is a whole separate thing like i could go into because i've written a lot about this too but the difference between trading and investing is yeah. so dramatic that you have to pick one and what a lot of people do is like kind of trade in their portfolio but what they're really doing is kind of gambling because they're a little bit bored and they it's fun to research stuff and like oh that beyond meat seems like a cool product like you know i'll buy some of that stock the, like old peter lynch methodology of like i like the product so i'll buy the stock kind of thing um and generally retail individual investors underperform massively uh, mostly because of transaction costs and because mm -hmm. of selling low and buying high um, because human nature is like greed and fear right so the research the literature all says you should not be actively trading your investments um, so you either have to like put your stuff on, on the, and maybe rebalance once a year or trade something where you have an edge and you know that's what trading trading is a whole separate business where it's like a you know a completely different profession where you're trying to determine why you have an edge in a specific market and then you know harvest or extract that edge over time that's that's a really really important point to make um we have a section in the academy online that is like, know what kind of investor you are or know know right, whether you're right. an investor or a trader because if you if you don't that's your starting point right i mean maybe you can be both maybe you have your bulk of your things are investment but you have a small account that you sort of have fun with so and trade that's a really good idea so i think um i think it might have been morgan hazel that i first saw that i can't remember ben carlson maybe but um one of those guys said it uh that if you have like the itch to you know trade and like learn about investments because you find it fun then put like x it depends on your net worth but like you know if you're worth two million dollars put 70 grand or 50 grand in an account and that's like my fun account and i'll like buy splunk and sell tesla and you know whatever things you think make sense um but you shouldn't be doing that in your real investment account because like it, there's just so much data like there's professional dudes and women that graduated from Harvard sitting in Boston studying this stuff all day and they don't outperform the market so like there I, there's no you need to understand first of all yourself like why are you doing these things because a lot of times people are doing it more for fun than 
really to make money. And then it becomes very suboptimal because then you own stuff. And then at the worst possible, it's also wrong, wrong way risk. So generally like if you're long a bunch of stocks for fun and then the economy starts turning, then you start being worrying about your job or your income. And then you're like, Oh shoot, now I got to sell this stocks. So <laughs> owning stocks is wrong that if you're weak, is a wrong way risk as well. So yeah. generally I would say like you have your investments and if you want to trade, trade, but keep it, definitely keep it separate. Yeah. Because what, what happens a lot of time too is people will buy something as a trade and it goes down 8% and they're like, oh, I like the company. I'll just, I'll just keep that one. You know, like so people never <laughs> yeah. step out of their bad trades. Yeah, that's right. They're, to they're, they're totally different. Uh, I, mm. think that, I think that's really, really important. Um, we have a, a, a comment and a question from Ralph. The market has more chop than Benihana. What do you think of uh, Eurodollar, uh, Cable, and uh, Canada, and Bi and Bitcoin? There's a lot of questions in there, Ralph. But, but sure. I, you are the currency. You are the currency man, Brent. So yeah. you, talk about Eurodollar and the pound, because in your in, you did a survey on Twitter, and I think um, people were very mixed on the dollar. But boy, they had some pretty pretty strong feelings about the euro and the pound, didn't they? Yeah. So it's interesting that I, I was actually surprised by the results. So Basically, in terms of the dollar, the distribution was almost perfectly 50-50, like bullish and bearish. Um, the, the, the distribution is that people are very bullish yen next year, which makes sense. Um, Kuroda's out, and he is the architect of the low rates policy. So it makes sense that they could tweak the policy and rates go up and converge, and that, that's why dollar yen could go down, i.e. yen, stronger yen. Um, and it's interesting because you have to separate like sentiment and positioning are usually the same thing, right? Like if people are bullish, they're long and if they're bearish, they're short, but sometimes they're not the same because like right now at the turn of the year, people don't really want to like put on a massive short dollar yen position. It's like December or whatever, ninth, um, and your year's kind of already wrapped up. So what you'll see a lot of times at this turn of the year time is that consensus is building towards an idea. But people haven't actually put the idea on yet because they don't want also to have bad mark to market. So like they'd rather just do it on like December, the last week of December and know what their mark to market is and then start fresh on Jan 1. Um, so I have a, I, I would think that that trade will probably work, that like short CAD yen, short dollar yen will probably work. Um, in terms of, of the euro, I feel like it's... Probably like it makes sense right now that it's going up. December tends to be a very strong month for the euro. There's some bank repatriation and some like flows that happen in December. Um, and then, you know, we're coming off very oversold. You know, we're down at 98. People were thinking like Europe was going to have no energy, like the businesses were going to shut down because there's going to be no electricity. Like that's how extreme the sentiment got. So I get why we're rallying here, but. I don't really think Euro and, and Sterling will do well into next year. I think you look at all the economies and you can go through them all and say like, okay, what are the pros and cons? And the US is probably like still one of the best looking economies. Like Canada has a lot of interest rate sensitivity, um, housing, cons like consumer bubble, like net private debt in the U in sorry, private debt in Canada is like, as high as it was in Japan in 1990 in the, at the peak of the Nikkei bubble. Um, and then similar, some, some similar stuff in Australia. 
Um, and then mortgage resets, also a big problem in the UK, recession in the UK, energy crisis, still a thing in, in the EU and in the UK. So to me, these moves in sterling and in, in the euro are more like corrections in a broader downtrend. Um, and then the UK also got mega oversold on like the trust crazy stuff, um, mm -hmm. like the fiscal crisis there. So to me, this is more like, it's a big bounce, like what, euro's up about 6% off the lows. Um, but I think in general that the like euro down, sterling down, but probably yen stronger next year. I agree, even though it's consensus, I agree with that, that trade. Um, at least until, so one thing that I find is that the, the like hot trades of the new year, they tend to work until like mid-Feb to early March kind of thing. And then, you know, narratives just don't usually last forever, right? So people get positioned and then whatever happens. And then, you know, maybe by that point, Delian, so Delian's at 136.60 now, maybe Delian's 131. And then Kuroda's replacement is kind of dovish or whatever, you know, like eventually new information comes and the old narrative just kind of fizzles. Um, but I could see those trades working pretty well, especially dollar-yen down um, into, or and I like CAD-yen down the best because I feel like being short Canada just ticks a ton of boxes. Like the Bank of Canada just, uh, to me, they sound like they're done. Like their language was always about front-loading. And to me, it sounds like they said, okay, we're done. And now the onus is on the data to like force us to hike more. Um, and then in the meantime, you have like oil trades so bad, like, like all the good news and all the bad price. Um, and then you have like a very bloated consumer. Um, and the thing with the consumer debt is that like you d when rates go up, you don't just get killed right away. It kind of like slowly creeps up on you when your mortgage resets or your home equity line or whatever borrowing you do as you renew those debts, same with corporations, right? Like the the pain when rates go up this fast in such a short time it's like this tidal wave that's like slowly going to come over the economy as all the things reset so like carvana is like the poster child they're like they're under a lot of pressure because their debt is like ridiculous um but that is kind of similar for everyone so then you have to ask yourself who's that going to hit the hardest and like U.S. consumer is still like the savings rate has gone down a lot, but the consumer still has a lot of money in the U.S. Um, they like housing leverage is pretty low, even though house prices went up. Um, so like I feel like the U.S. consumer relative to the Canadian consumer, as an example, is much stronger. So um, and then if you take Canada against yen, you kind of get like the good yen story and the bad Canada story all in like one package. And the entry point's not like amazing. It's come off a little bit, but it's still, I still think it's pretty good. Is um, that your favorite? Is that your favorite trade right now? Yeah, my favorite trade was Kiwi Canada, um, but then it has absolutely exploded. Like it, it, so now it's like, it's hard to advocate for something when it's just gone up like 7% in a month or whatever. Um, but I think a lot of the crosses, so the, the thing about Aussie Cat and Kiwi Cat is that you're getting like a China reopening halo with Aussie and Kiwi mm. um, and then New Zealand specifically. So the old China, like happy news from China used to always be by Aussie because it was infrastructure, copper, um, like cement, you know, like building stuff. Um, but now when there's good news out of China, it's more about consumption. So that's like more protein, like mm -hmm. New Zealand sells a lot of milk and cheese and all the like soft commodities. 
So it used to be about hard commodities. Now it's about soft commodities. And that's why like Kiwi has ripped. Um, and then if you look at all those commodities versus oil, like oil is like the worst, you know, it's, it's just been so bad. So, and then Canada's most, most reliant on oil. By the way, if you, um, I know sometimes when we talk about currencies, not everybody is up, as up to speed if they want, sure, but sure. you know what I'm going to say? I don't know if you know this, Brent, but today on Real Vision is a masterclass from Brent on the art of currency trading. So if you oh, want to I forgot about that. Yeah, right. it dropped today. So if you want to know um, everything that you need to know to sort of get up to speed, and I feel like we're in an environment in this next year where you're going to have to know all of this stuff. You can't just sort of, you know... Um, hit something and then not pay attention. I think all of this stuff in, in a diversified portfolio is going to be important. So be sure yeah. to check that out. I mean, I'm biased, but I think that having like a basic working knowledge of macro is really useful for anyone that trades anything. I mean, like I, that's kind of my specialty. So I know that I'm biased, but I do believe that's true. Absolutely. And may, maybe never more so than now. So, mm. so Brent, if, if we wrap this up, um, as I'm listening to you, um, my takeaway from this conversation is that bad news is bad news, uh, and that you know, uh, short term, you feel like that trip, that that negativity towards stocks may be a little bit overdone, but broader. And if you look longer term, um, stocks are going to have a lot of competition. That's going to be a consistent theme now. Um, yeah. The reversal of QE is going to move people away from those super risky assets. And that's going to be a more constant headwind, but a dynamic 60-40 might end up doing okay next year, just based on some of the historicals when we come out of a year as bad as this. You like yep. owning fixed income. Um, you like keeping some powder dry so you can look for some good stocks when you mm -hmm. see those um, declines and um, kind of try to stay focused in the now um, because yeah, guessing yeah. the future and listening to central bankers is not going to help. Right. And like, I feel like no matter how smart or like awesome an economist is, nobody really knows exactly what the path of inflation looks like. So yeah. you have to be somewhat Bayesian and like adjust your worldview as we get new information. Right. Um, and you know, as we get new, new prints from, you can't like, I don't think you should react to every single print, but you know, as, as we get more information, we're going to find out, okay, what is the floor in, in CPI and PCE? And I think that's probably one of the most important things that we need to find out. Absolutely. Um, I think I saw a line in your note that should be the headline, um, chop, not drop. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That's great. I love it. <laughs> I guess essentially what I'm, what I'm waiting for is the, a shoe to drop, right? So the, I think people are always, because of 08 and 2020, people are used to like greed and fear. And those are like the only two things. But there's a whole other one that's like despair and apathy and that's what like 01, 02, 03 was. That's what crypto winter in 2018 was. That's a different kind of bear market that we haven't seen. And so I think we're more heading towards that where you get a lot of days like today where everyone's just like, dude, this makes no sense. It's like, yeah, because no one's really trading and no one like, it, you know, there's no one really has any massive positions. And so it just kind of flops around. So I think you have to be kind of ready for that more like grinding sell the rallies, but also don't just sit there short all year because that's not, you're not going to make money doing that either. Fantastic advice. Brent, it was so great catching up with you. Enjoy the last couple of weeks of the year if we don't talk again. And everyone go check out that masterclass. You're going to be glad you did. 
All right. Awesome. Thanks, Maggie. Thanks, friend. Thanks to all of you for watching. I'm off next week, but Andreas and Ash will be here with another great lineup. So be sure to join us then. In the meantime, enjoy your weekend. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.